You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 62. Welcome back, Curd Nerds. I'm Gavin Weber, and this podcast is where you can learn about cheese making at home. Well, there's been some interesting things happen to me this uh, this past week. Um, I had a question from a customer this week who wanted to know how to make fasting cheese, and that's because um, Easter is uh, fast approaching here all, all the world around, and a lot of the Orthodox religions around the world have this tradition where they don't eat, they don't eat dairy products uh, before Easter. So they they don't eat cheese. So they have this cheese substitute called fasting cheese. And there is one company here in Australia called Colios. I think it m- might be imported from Greece. It's called Greek fasting cheese. Now, some of the research I've done, it is actually made from uh, vegetable oils and some nuts, but I can't find any recipes for it or any formulas. So, and that's, um, I've searched high and low. So if anybody has any information about fasting cheese, if they could drop me a note over at my contact page at uh, littlegreencheese.com slash contact hyphen me, I would be uh, greatly appreciated. I love to, uh, to do a video on how to make fasting cheese. That would be very interesting, and I dare say it would help out a lot of people um, during this time of the year. Anyway, I've also had a ton of requests to make a cheese called provolone. Now, provolone is in the class of cheeses called pasta filata or stretch curd cheeses. I had a look back through the my email list on uh, uh, from... Uh, littlegreencheese.com and there's about four or five requests for that via email and then I looked at my YouTube channel and there were 18 more requests for provolone so I'd never tasted the cheese before so tonight I went out and uh, sorry this afternoon I went out and bought a piece of provolone and it cost me like eight dollars for a small slice this was imported from Italy mind you so I'm going to try that on the weekend I'll do a little video on that and uh, and give your opinion, give my opinion on what it tastes like, and then try and make some provolone. Now I know that it is hung using rope, in and it is strung up in some unusual cylinder sort of shape. So I'm going to try that using some natural twine, and uh, yeah, it should be very interesting. So I'm, I'm quite excited to give that a go. So it won't be this weekend, unfortunately, because, uh, well, fortunately, because I'm teaching a cheese-making class, the one I was talking about last episode, and I've got a full course there. I've got four students that I'll be teaching on Sunday, so that'll be good fun. I'll be teaching them how to make paneer and uh, whole milk ricotta and quick mozzarella, so that should be good fun. I'll have four more curd nerds into the curd nerd academy, so that should be very exciting. Anyway, so the weekend after, I'll um, I'll attempt provolone and, and give that a go. And then I was looking at all the other cheeses that I've got on my 
list, as I say, as people keep requesting cheeses on YouTube. So, so far the cheeses I've got on my list are raclette or raclette, a goat's cheese called Browse, spelled B-R-O-U-S-S-E, Bruce, Browse. Not sure. Anyway, it's a small goat's cheese that's in a, um, a small log shape, so that should be interesting. Scamorza, which is another stretch curd cheese, pasta falata. Cambazola, which is a cross between a camembert and a gorgonzola. Brie, of course. I haven't mastered brie of all things, so I'll give that a go. Sherve, now that I've found a reliable source of goat's milk and a new one was added to the list the other day by a Mexican uh, viewer and that is oh, how am I going to say this it's Kotya so it's uh, C-O-T-I-J-A but I think it's pronounced Kotya so or Kotya <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce it anyway I've got a recipe for that it's uh, very similar in texture to feta but it actually tastes more like Parmesan or Parmigiano-Reggiano. Uh, and it's only aged for about six to seven weeks. So that should be interesting. I'm going to give that a go. So I've got recipes for all these cheeses. So uh, over the Easter break, I told Kim that uh, don't come near the kitchen. I'll be busy making cheese. So that should be good fun. Anyway, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. I'm going to play a voicemail first and answer that question because the answer is intense. It is a very, the question's short, but the answer is going to be very, very long. Uh, and then we're going to play the Q&A session from Ask the Cheese Man session number 13. Let's get stuck into that, shall we? So here's today's voicemail question. It's from, oh, you'll hear his, who it's from. Here we go. Hey, Gavin. This is Diana Lang from the United States. Um, I've been watching your videos for a while and, and some other videos on YouTube, and I've noticed that there's different cultures based on whether you're in the United States or in Australia or in the UK. Can you tell us the difference between, say, like an MM100 versus an MO? M30 that you use versus a type E culture, they're all just kind of different. And, you know, sometimes what I think is what I should be using might not be what somebody else would be using. So um, I appreciate the question being answered. Thanks. Well, thanks for your question, Diana. It is a difficult one to answer. But in simple terms, basically what you can do is look at the bacteria contained within the, the different packets. So you, that, that's how you determine what the equivalent uh, between the different brands are. So, for instance, and actually before I start the for instance, let's get something out of the way first. Culture companies put together different, different blends depending on the style of cheese that's going to be made. So most of the blends are fairly standard and there are about, uh, each sachet usually has between two and six different types of uh, cultures or strains in various ratios. You may also find that between the different companies, and there are quite a few of them, 
there will they will have uh, the same culture, the same sorry, the same bacteria listed, but they will be in different ratios, uh, and they may even have different strains of that culture. So it may be difficult to replicate the same cheese using a different brand, even though the same bacteria are listed uh, within that brand. Now, an important um, reference regarding cultures, there's a few things to know. So, and as I read through, you'll understand this. So, so each blend of culture and each uh, amount of, uh, of bacteria will determine whether it's a moderate to high acidifier or a low acidifier, uh, so how much uh, lactic acid it will produce. It'll also determine how much um, it will break down the milk proteins, and this is also known as proteolysis. Um, I'll get the right word right, which means protein-degrading enzymes. So this contributes to the development of the desirable flavour and texture uh, in all aged cheeses. There's another determining factor that uh, that may come into play here, and that's diacetyl. And diacetyl is a f- fermentation compound which contributes to a desirable buttery aroma to a cheese. And finally, another thing that has to be taken into consider- consideration is gas production. So cultures that do produce a little bit or a lot of carbon dioxide. So let's go through a few of the ones you mentioned anyway. So MM100, let's have a look. I've got a big list here in front of me. MM100 is made by Denisco. Uh, So Choose at MM100 uh, contains three strains of bacteria. So MM100 contains... Lactococcus lactis, subspecies lactis. It also contains Lactococcus lactis, subspecies cremoris. And it also contains Lactococcus subspecies lactis biovar diacetyl lactis. So that is a mesophilic culture. And what its properties are, I'll tell you what that does. It is a moderate acidifier with some gas and high diacetyl production. So it's used for brie, camembert, Havarti, Gouda, Edam, blue cheese, sherv, and other buttery, open-textured cheeses. So uh, that is a uh, wouldn't. It's not an aromatic um, mesophilic, but it's a mesophilic that you can produce a buttery-flavored cheese with. Uh, it doesn't have a comparison in the ones that I use. Let's have a look at, say, the one I use, MO30. So it has, so MO30 contains Lactococcus lactis subspecies cremoris and Lactococcus lactis subspecies lactis, which is exactly the same as MA11, which is made by Denisco. Uh, so that's choose it MA11, MA14, MA16, and MA19. Uh, and it has the same properties, which is a moderate to high acidifier with no gas or diacetyl production. So it has a clean flavour. It's mainly used for making cheddars, uh, anything with a closed texture, and uh, anything proteolytic during ageing. So it's going to basically break down lots of the 
the uh, milk proteins. So it's going to be used for cheeses like uh, cheddar, Colby, Monterey Jack. So very good. And another equivalent to that would be would be type three mesophilic as well, uh, which is made by Abiasa, which is a brand I've never heard of. Anyway, so there's some um, some mesophilic types, and just another popular one which uh, everybody quotes is uh, uh, Floridanica. Now Floridanica is uh, one that produces a buttery flavour. So I won't go through the strains. It's, you can have a look at uh, my website, Little Green Workshops, and go and have a look at Floridanica. I've got all the strains listed. But uh, it's the same as Aromatic Type B, B1 by Alibasta. It's the same as MO36R by Sacco. It's also the same as Choose It SMADL77. So there are some similar aromatic mesophilics out there. So their their main properties are they're a moderate acidifier with some gas production and high diacetyl um, production. So they convert the uh, milk proteins and give it a buttery flavour. So they give you a very good texture, so buttery aroma uh, and flavour to the cheese. So that's what a aromatic mesophilic culture would do to the curds as it, as it uh, ages. So they're the mesophilics. So when it comes down to the thermophilics, there are a, a few thermophilic cultures. Uh, so the main ones to be aware of. So there's Streptococcus thermophilus. Uh, the other one, main one is Lactobacillus helveticus and Lactobacillus delbrucki subspecies bulgarius. So they're the three main um, thermophilic bacteria. And it just so happens that I've got a a very good all-rounder thermophilic culture in the form of Sacco's MOT92, which has all three of those thermophilic cultures in, in it, as well as uh, lactobacillic lactus which is a thermophilic culture. So it starts acidifying at a low temperature and then finishes off at a high. So I use that for all of my um, high-temperature cheeses, uh, and it's a really good all-rounder. So I use that for all my Italian cheeses, and I'm going to be using it for uh, quite a few of the pasta filata cheeses that I'm going to be making soon. So where can you get all this information? Well, one of the Good books that I found with a lot of this sort of culture information. So Mary Carlin's book called Artisan Cheese Making at Home. She goes quite into depth about cheese making cultures and their subspecies and that sort of stuff. Uh, if you go, so if you have, if you do have it, um, it talks about not only the uh, species, but it also talks about the different types of moulds as well, and it talks about their properties. Um, and it goes into more detail about what I was talking about, about the acidification. The proteolytic enzymes, diacetyl and gas production. So she goes into depth um, in the book. And if you go to a website, she's actually got a PDF, uh, which I've actually been using a little bit of here um, to compare the different types of cultures. Yeah, so Mary's website is... 
artisancheesemakingathome.com. So she's got lots of handy forms and, and hints there uh, that supports the book. So um, don't, uh, don't hesitate to check that out. She's got some great resources there. So, yeah, pretty cool. Well, hopefully that's answered your question, Deanna. Uh, I know it's been a, a bit of a long answer, um, but it is, a, even though it's a short question, I, I could probably go on for about another hour just talking about some of the variations of the uh, of the cheese cultures. But definitely go out over and check out Mary's site and uh, specifically go over to, uh, sorry, the, uh, the menu that says Creating Cheese, go over to Forms and Charts, and then... Uh, she's got a chart for Comprehensive Cultures Guide, and you will find a PDF document that describes comparison between just about every type of culture that you will find, definitely in uh, in North America anyway. Not so much here in Australia because we have all sorts. We import them from all over the place, not specifically from, from some of the places in North America. We get them from everywhere. Anyway, thanks for your question. So let's get into the um, questions from <laughs> from After Cheese Man, episode 13. The first question today is from Dharma Yaffe. And Dharma says, hi, Gavin. I know that I'm going to make just half of your recipe. I think she's referring to the feta recipe I put up recently, the goat's feta. Um, should I reduce the ingredients amounts uh, and the brining time as well, but should I re- reduce the pressing time too? Does it affect the cheese texture? Thanks. Um, so what I'll do, I'll generally answer this question uh, for all, most of the recipes that I have. So it's just like baking a cake, basically. If you want to double the recipe, you can double it, but the cooking times um, and pressing times... Um, do uh, do matter. So let me, let's go through them. So when it comes down to the ingredients, yes, you do have to double or half them, depending if you're reducing the recipe or increasing them. So you do need to do that. Insofar as the acidification time, it needs to be the same because you've scaled it, basically. Still needs to be the same amount of time. For the renneting time, it needs to be the same. For the stirring times, it needs to be the same. You need to get the same amount of whey out of the, sorry, the same volume of whey out of your curds. So all those times are the same. The draining times, they need to be the same. The pressing times need to be, yeah, they'll be, need to be the same. The pressure will need to be the same. Depending on the the size of the cheese, it'll be how many pounds of pressure. Yeah, it'll need to be the same as well. You just adjust, just to have a look at the size of your cheese. Obviously, the smaller the cheese, you don't want to squeeze the bejeebas out of it. Most of the pressures that I put in the recipes, they're a mashup of different recipes I've gained from, say, the internet uh, and from books, and I look at the best of. Are the best parts of recipes so I look at the best pressing times and that sort of things and basically find the best pressures that I can experiment with it and then then give them to you guys from the results so basically those pressures are what I've applied using my spring press 
and then allow you guys to figure it out from there. So, and that's for the size mould that I've used. So you, you'll have to figure it out from there. Uh, the brining times depends on the size of the cheese that you've made. So if it's a bit smaller, then reduce the the brining time by half. If it's larger, then, you know, double the, the, the brining time because you don't want too much salt in your cheese. So there, that's a basic guideline. For maturation, it'll be the same as per the recipe, that the original recipe, um, because the cheese will probably take about that amount of time. Obviously, if you've made a super massive large cheese, it will take longer to mature than a tiny little cheese of the same type. Anyway, I hope that's uh, that that has helped, Dharma. Okay, the next question is from Brian Tremling. I hope I pronounced that right, Brian. Um, Brian said, hey, Gavin, thanks for all the info. I made my first cheddar last night and am enjoying it. Uh, it seems to have come together well, even though I got it a little too warm at the beginning stage. My question is regarding to temperature in the ageing process. I know you said 50 Fahrenheit for three months, but what range should it live in? Uh, 45 to 50 or can it be 40 to 60 also i really need to make one of those curd cutters mine were all different sizes last night okay uh, ranges no we can't do ranges they're in the army uh the answer is uh, well first of all brian well done on making your first cheddar congratulations it's always a big step in the right direction when you've made your first cheese now, unfortunately, with cheeses, the temperature ranges for the recipes that I give are fairly tight. So for a cheddar, you can mature it at between 10 to 13 Celsius, which is between 50 and 55 Fahrenheit. That's about as much as I'd vary it, that's for sure. If you make it too hot, the lactic bacteria will multiply too fast and will produce too much acid and it may be too bitter. If the temperature is too low, the bacteria will go dormant and they will slow down production of acid and conversion of the fats into the fantastic flavours that a cheddar is well known for. So you really do need to stick to those temperatures. They're tried and true through the ages since cheddar was first invented way back when in England, when it was invented, way back when. So, yeah, you really can't vary from those, Brian. Uh, and that goes for most of the recipes. In fact, all of them. Don't change the temperatures because it's during the affinage stage when most people come unstuck uh, that say, you know, I was going fantastic up until I put it into the cheese fridge and then I ask them what temperature you put it in uh, and usually they come back with a temperature that's different than the one that's in the recipe. So go figure. So, yeah, check your temperature ranges, folks, and you'll find that if you can stick to them fairly well, then your cheeses will come out pretty good, I reckon. Uh, you know, I check mine once a week, and that's about all you need to do. Just check your little thermometer inside the fridge and make sure that you're at the right range. My cheese fridge stays between 10 and 13. Um, if I'm making a special batch of camembert, I will then take it down to seven and make sure there's no other cheeses in the fridge because seven degrees is what um, Bloomy Rhine cheese is like. 
but other than that, I'll keep it at between 10 and 13, and that's where it stays. Anyway, thanks for your question, Brian. Appreciate it, mate. Okay, the next question is from Spencer Herrick. Hi, Gavin. Again, thanks for all the great videos you post. I have a question. Can you substitute the rennet tablets for the liquid in your recipes? The reason I ask, I had some old liquid rennet and it would not coagulate the milk and I ended up wasting two gallons of milk. What are your thoughts? Well, Spencer, you definitely can use rennet tablets. They are a great little uh, thing if you can't keep the liquid rennet cool. Rennet tablets have instructions on their packets for how much milk they can coagulate. I have some rennet tablets that I regularly use for mozzarella and they actually ship with most of our kits um, because they're so simple to use. They're called Fromais 50. It's, I think they're made in Italy. And each tablet can coagulate 50 litres of milk. Uh, now, the good thing about them is they're scored into quarters and so each quarter can coagulate 12 and a half litres of milk which is which is really good a quarter can do 10 litres 10 litres is fine uh, it doesn't over over rennet the milk uh, the good thing about that is they last a lot lot longer than liquid rennet so uh, but however there is a simple test that you can do to see if your liquid rennet is okay I will be doing a video about it soon, but I'll just give you a quick heads up now uh, in case anybody's watching and they're going, oh, well, he's not telling us everything. So I will tell you everything. All you do is take a teaspoon of, uh, of the milk you want to use and just warm it up to room temperature, no hotter than that. So just room temperature. Put in about three drops of the liquid rennet, undiluted. Don't dilute it in water or anything like that. And within about 10 to 15 minutes, you should see it start to form a skin on top. And within 30 minutes, you should, should see it go solid into the curds you would normally see. Now, if it takes over an hour, then pretty good bet that your rennet is spent and it probably won't work. So I'll do a video on how to check whether your rennet is viable, liquid rennet is viable. Uh, and uh, and that'll go come up soon. So the next time I do a cheese making session, I'll do a little side video for everybody. Anyway, thanks for your question, Spencer. So the patron of the week is Ted Roberts. Thanks for your support, Ted. If you'd like to support the channel, so I can make new and interesting cheese and cheese related content like this one, then please support me via Patreon. Now you can do that by visiting littlegreencheese.com/support. So you can support me by pledging as little as $1 a month. And that will go towards me creating these cheesemaking resources in the form of audio podcasts and video tutorials. Don't forget that you can pick up cheesemaking products for all the cheeses that I make and showcase over on the YouTube channel and that I talk about here on the podcast at littlegreenworkshops.com.au and just go click through to the cheese making section and that we do ship all over the world bar one or two countries that have customs restrictions on us sending 
through cheese-making cultures and the like, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, don't forget that we do ship internationally. Also, if you liked this show, don't forget that you can leave an iTunes review. Uh, I'll just read out one or two that we had recently. This one was left in February this year, and it's from New Jersey OMG. And they've said, I have just started making cheese, and I have been binge listening to these podcasts. I'm hooked. Just made my fourth cheese today and bought the ebook too. And they gave me five stars. Well, thank you very much, New Jersey OMG. And that was under the title of Entertaining and Informative. Uh, and there's another one here. Uh, it's titled Curd, Curd Nerd University. Uh, and it's a five star review as well. And this is by Rust and Dust A Must from the US. And it was November last year. I am new to cheese making and heard one of Gavin's podcasts. I downloaded them all and started from the first to the last. I feel like I have been to a curd nerd university. Gavin freely gives his time and knowledge, as well as the knowledge of school cheesemakers through interviews. Wish I could give this podcast series 10 stars. Great work. Learned many new ideas. And Gavin answered all of my questions through these podcasts. Keep up the fabulous work. And to all those behind the scenes that helped Gavin. Thanks, mates. Diane Oregon, or Diane from Oregon, USA. In fact, it's probably the same Diane who left a question a couple of weeks back. Um, thank you very much, Diane. And last but not least, this is from Mataki from Australia. Gavin is a star. Five stars says, thank you, Gavin, for sharing your secrets and making my cheese making life easier. Well, thanks very much, Mataki. Um, if you want to leave a an iTunes review, you will find on the show notes for this page, there's a little button that says iTunes review. Just click through there and it'll take you through to your country's iTunes page and you can leave a review. I don't mind what stars it is. It'll all come up. I'll be able to see them all from any country in the world and uh, it gets sent through to a special little page that I have and I'll read them out here on the show. Uh, fantastic stuff. It also helps them get the, this show get a little bit more visible in iTunes, which is one of the biggest search engines for podcasts in the world. Finally, uh, wish me luck for my cheesemaking workshop this weekend, please. A little bit nervous. It's been a while since I taught a workshop. It's uh, quite easy to stand in front of a camera and teach people, but when you've got live people, it's a little bit uh, intimidating, but I think I'll be all right. But uh, one of them's a friend, so <laughs> a work colleague from work, and it's his mum and dad as well that I'm teaching, so I better be on my best behaviour. Anyway, <laughs> if you want a question answered on the show, don't forget that you can pop over to my contact page at littlegreencheese.com slash contact hyphen me where you can leave a voicemail question or simply fill in the contact form and leave a written question. And uh, I will use those on either this podcast or Ask the Cheese Man over on YouTube. <laughs> I think it's that time of the day. For upcoming workshop dates, 
recipes can all be found at littlegreencheese.com, including my ebook, Keep Calm and Make Cheese The Beginner's Guide to Cheese Making at Home. That's available in all good ebook, sorry, that's, that is available in all ebook formats, including PDF that you can find on my site. You can find all of my cheese making video tutorials over at cheeseman.tv, which will take you to my YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next exciting episode of the Little Green Cheese Podcast. During this podcast, you heard royalty-free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop and Call to the Dairy Cows. See you next time. Bye.